Welcome to the Better Money, Better World Show, a podcast project of Impact Capital Managers, or ICM. ICM is a group of investors who believe that by solving the world's greatest challenges, we will generate market-leading returns for investors while bending the arc of human history towards sustainability and justice. ICM members have backed companies ranging from Tesla to Coursera to Vital Farms. Collectively, ICM's 60 members manage over $12 billion. I'm your host, Daniel Pianco, a co-founder of ICM. My day job is co-founder and managing director of Achieve Partners, a leading investor in education and human capital. Here on Better Money, Better World, we'll explore the stories of our investor members, the companies we're building, and the limited partners allocating money to investors who don't just seek alpha, but also to leverage their capital to build a better world. Episodes will be released each week and feature a new guest telling their own unique investment stories, strategies, and perspectives. And we've got lots of great guests lined up. So if you're excited about what this show might teach you about impact investing and the people behind it, make sure you subscribe to Better Money, Better World, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're feeling generous, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to highlight the work of impact investors and grow the community of impact investing. Now, with that out of the way, let me introduce you to our Better Money, Better World guests. In 2017, Ford Foundation President Darren Walker embarked on an ambitious proposal to invest 8% of its then $12.5 billion endowment, or roughly $1 billion, into impact investing and hired Roy Swan to run the effort. What could one of the most well-known foundations in the world do with the, quote, other 95% of their assets? The foundation recently released a report on their efforts, highlighting a 28% compound annual return across six key investment themes, diverse fund managers, multifamily affordable rental housing, quality jobs and inclusive capitalism in the U.S., and financial inclusion and biotech healthcare in the global South. The foundation was acutely aware that the definition of impact investing is like a snowflake. No two are the same. The foundation therefore honed in on categories that could deliver both positive social impact and commercially developed enough to deliver a market rate of return. The final cut was areas where the foundation had intellectual capital that could boost its returns. Roy Swan is head of mission investments at the Ford Foundation. Prior to Ford, Roy served a variety of roles at Morgan Stanley, including CEO of Morgan Stanley Small Business Investment Corporation and co-head of Global Sustainable Finance. In his role at Morgan Stanley, Roy encouraged the bank to be a founding member of Impact Capital Managers and was an early co-conspirator in the creation of ICM and the broader impact investment investing community, including funding a study in 2010 about whether there should be impact investing in the United States. Listen as Roy Swan describes leading the Ford Foundation's efforts to deploy $1 billion into impact strategies that drive impact and 28% compound annual return. Roy Swan, welcome to the Better Money, Better World podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You know, you uh, president the creation of impact capital managers, and then perhaps most importantly, you started just at the Ford Foundation, just after the foundation made a commitment to invest a billion dollars in impact investing. When you started day one, what was your first priority? 
other than the proverbial finding the men's room, um, what I what I thought was really important was um, to get to know my colleagues at the Ford Foundation, and I don't mean just my team, but to get a sense of um, who the other folks were, um, uh, and all try to get a good understanding of the programs. When it came to the specific in investing job, um, the first priority was to understand, um, first of all, meet the trustees again. I'd met many of them during the interview process, um, but have a chance to chat with them, uh, specifically the members of the Mission Related Investment Committee who oversaw our uh, endowment investment activities and get a sense of um, what their expectations were. Uh, not just expectations, but their hopes and dreams for um, for the for the uh, investment strategy, the implementation, what the type of impact um, they hoped we could potentially produce, um, any views on the uh, investment, uh, you know, the financial returns and social impact returns. So it was really just trying to get as much information as I could. Uh, so that I understand kind of the domain in which um, we could operate. You ended up getting really focused on themes and and focusing the investment uh, decisions on on thematic approach. Can you talk about what the themes were and how you came up with them? Yeah. So the Ford Foundation, you know, this was a Darren Walker initiative. I mean, Darren had the courage to ask the trustees how they should be thinking about how the Ford Foundation should be thinking about the so-called other 95%. So under U.S. law, foundations have to give away 5% of their uh, resources every year. What about the other 95%? As a part of proving out the case for why the trustees should agree to using some of that other 95% uh, to be invested in line with the Ford Foundation's mission, there was a very rigorous uh, evaluation and analysis process that took place uh, led by Zav Briggs and Christine Looney, who's uh, my deputy director and team. And a part of that was um, how should we look at impact investing, which uh, I, I make the joke that, you know, the definition of impact investing is kind of like snowflake. No two definitions are the same. Everyone's got different views. And so what the Ford Foundation decided to do with the help of a couple of uh, advisors was to come up with about, I don't know, it was 50 or so categories of impact investing and hone in on categories that uh, could be pursued based on a couple of different filters. One was what are categories that can both deliver positive social impact and are commercially developed enough that there's a track record or a good sense that you can generate risk-adjusted market rates of return. So that narrowed it down quite significantly. The next uh, level was, where does the Ford Foundation have intellectual capital or, or experience? So the initial two themes were multifamily affordable rental housing in the U.S. and financial inclusion in the global South. When I joined, one of the early things that I did was I asked uh, senior management and the board of trustees 
for permission to expand to a couple other areas. One of the reasons why the Ford Foundation wanted to start out so narrowly was because a billion dollars, yes, it was the largest commitment by all foundations uh, up to that point, and I think still now uh, for mission-related investment, but it's really a drop in the bucket when you think about the capital that will be required to address the issues that impact investing is intended to address. So the thing was, let's just be really concentrated. But I, I felt that there were opportunities and a couple other themes where the Ford Foundation's presence and capital could be helpful. And fortunately, uh, senior management and trustees agreed, and we expanded to uh, a couple other areas, diverse fund managers uh, in the U.S. and quality jobs in the U.S. We later end up expanding into two more themes, uh, biotech, health tech, and the global south. And then a global theme, which, we're, which we refer to as inclusive capitalism. Uh, at the moment, we have one investment in that theme. But yeah, that's that's how we think about it. And uh, maybe picking affordable housing, is there, because I know that was the first and perhaps most developed, was there a deal or a, a, an investment that you feel epitomizes the spirit of the Ford Foundation's impact strategy and goals? We don't make investments unless we believe that they will... Um, rise to the criteria that you just mentioned. So the first investment uh, that was made was uh, Jonathan Rose and Associates. Jonathan Rose uh, has been a multifamily affordable rental housing uh, investor for some time. And what's what's great about Jonathan and our other affordable housing uh, investees is they they kind of fit an objective, which is Rather than us um, providing capital uh, for self-storage facilities for humans, um, our general partners help develop quality housing that the residents will be proud to call home. That includes uh, some social services uh, support products um, that help enhance the quality of life of the residents. The other thing is, we actually go beyond double bottom line with our multifamily affordable rental housing portfolio. I believe all our managers um, also invest in renewable energy. So we're, we're triple bottom line in our multifamily affordable rental housing portfolio. We had Jonathan Rose on the podcast. So uh, thanks thanks for the shout out. Now, I want to I turn to something that um, is important. You recently, or the Ford Foundation recently released a report on its success in mission-related investing. And and you put out that your uh, mission-related investments have a compound annual growth rate return of 28% from 2017 to 2021. Did you ever feel like you were sacrificing impact for alpha or, or vice versa? Uh, no. Um, and th- let me just speak to the, the reason why we put out that report um, well, there are a couple of reasons. One, um, we talk about our investment portfolio from time to time in an ad hoc fashion. This was the first report we referred to it as our five-year report card, uh, where Darren Walker wanted to talk about um, how we're doing uh, to provide information to the market. It wasn't intended to be a chest-thumping exercise or um, sometimes I would say, you know, peacock feather strutting, that that wasn't the point. The point was to encourage those who were on the fence about impact investing to go forth unafraid, to steal uh, a phrase from my kids' um, school. Um, 
And and so what we wanted to, to do was provide another data point that you can pursue double bottom line um, investing activities and um, and do and and do well and do good. So we included some of our social impact uh, metrics and obviously the financial metric. Um, and, and, and that's really it. I mean, one of the things I should say, uh, which is why I answered so quickly, no, is that my team, we have a, a number of different sayings that we talk about. And one of them is don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, so we don't expect to be perfect about anything. We pursue excellence, perfection, but we understand that that's really hard, if not impossible to achieve. And so just to use one example, for multifamily affordable housing, you could have a thousand metrics or more as a way to measure your way and attempt to measure your way to perfection. At this stage of the game, we focus on one metric, and that's based on our understanding that depending upon the numbers, anywhere from seven, there's a shortage in the U.S. of anywhere from 7 million to 20 million affordable households uh, or, or housing units, I should say. And so our simple metric is, well, how many, how many new, how many units have you preserved and how many units uh, have you developed? So we, we keep it simple at, at, at this stage. Uh, we'll learn as we go, share as we learn, and we'll evolve um, as time goes on. Why is uh, how many units uh, saved or developed a simple metric? Because it is uh, well, I guess the term simple, uh, I guess it's a relative term. So the question is so simple that it's confusing to me because if there is an opportunity to preserve a unit of housing and you make an investment to preserve that unit of housing, then you've just addressed a social problem. Um, and as time goes on, uh, we may learn that there could be other metrics that might be um, useful to pursue, but at the moment, um, to step back, the way we developed our themes is we came up with big social problems. The big social problem is a shortage of housing units. And therefore, if the big social problem is a shortage of housing units, then anything that addresses that shortage, which could be preservation or addition, we see as helpful. So, so that's why we have honed in on that as a very simple, uh, straightforward metric. Uh, other metrics could be um, how many children um, uh, who live in the, uh, the housing units get A's on their report cards. We may get to that stage at some point if, for example, we um, find a, uh, a general partner, a, a private equity manager who says, not only do we invest to preserve and create new affordable housing, we also provide educational programs where we guarantee every child will get an A uh, in all their classes. So that we may decide that that's an important uh, metric to measure, but we're not at that stage yet. Maybe someone can guarantee that our kids will get uh, will get A's as well. <laughs> um, I I pay I pay top dollar. I I pay top dollar too. I thought you. Know, can you give it that? That's a great example and sort of great example of sort of the evolution of what you'd like to see in housing. Uh, let's take probably your second largest area, which is a uh, good job. 
Um, do you have an equivalent metric in the good jobs category and maybe highlight an investor or an approach that you're particularly interested in there? Yeah, the the the, the quality jobs theme, um, it is not one of our largest. It is uh, an area that we really want to double down on in the near term uh, where we've got uh, we're, we're, we're paying, we're paying a lot of, of attention to what we might be able to do to encourage, um, more private equity investors, um, to think about generating attractive financial returns, not through the, what some people consider kind of an old fashioned way where, uh, there was a, a template where, you know, late stage private equity, you buy companies, you'd fire as many people as you could. Um, you might figure out how to lower benefits costs by transitioning employees from full-time to part-time. Other things where employees are treated as fungible expenses as opposed to valuable assets, all with the goal of as quickly as possible increasing profitability net income because you, the faster you can do that, the better um, uh, the IRR and depending upon how you measure it, the better your carried interest from a compensation perspective as a private equity investor. And so our hope is that um, people will see um, value creation when there is a codependency between superior operational design, that's classic business school kind of everything from supply chain through you know sourcing raw materials, supply chain to distribution. We look at that and superior human capital investment uh, and 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 how you deliver very attractive, if not superior, financial returns in that way, which we believe is a, a more um, sustainable and inclusive form of capitalism. So we, our academic partner there is Professor Zainab Tun, who's co-founder of, of something called the Good Jobs Institute. Um, she's a professor at MIT Sloan. She got her PhD in operations research uh, at Harvard Business School. She wrote a book called The Good Job Strategy. And uh, we're, we're hopeful that there will, we'll be able to um, uh, encourage more private equity firms to pursue that strategy. You know, um, KKR has a guy named Pete Stavros who has an approach that's um, somewhat related, um, whereby he um, his uh, the strategy that he leads is based on um, broad-based employee ownership, and we see that as one component of of a quality job. Uh, there are many characteristics that could be included, but uh, KKR has. Um, achieved superior financial returns and you know great performance by um, spreading employee ownership because what that does, and again, we're thinking about stakeholder capitalism here. Also, um, it makes the employees feel like owners and and gives them a stake in the productivity enhancements that they are best positioned to deliver. Uh, when you think about innovation, innovation based on most um, deep studies of innovation. You find innovation is all about communication at every level of the company, and many of the best ideas come from the people who are on the lines or driving the trucks or, or stamping the metal. You know, it, it sounds like you've you're achieving both, right? You're with the twenty eight percent IRR coupled with the kind of impact you're achieving. What do you think the Ford Foundation has to do to make the case that impact investing can be? the same or better than traditional investing. And, and Darren Walker actually talked about how his goals in five years to be able to make that case. Like, 
What do you actually have to do to make that case? That's a, that's another difficult question to answer because the expectations will be different by um, will be different for every member of the audience. So our goal is um, to do our work, share information that we think is relevant, demonstrate positive impact, and um, hopefully enough people who are on the fence will feel confident that it's a um, pursuit worthy of, of their time. You know, impact investing, no one's got the same two definitions like snowflakes. Impact investing simply means, I mean, if you want to look at the gen definition, and there's plenty of definitions, but for a lot of people, impact investing simply means investing capital into an enterprise with the goal of um, intentionally, that, in, that enterprise intentionally pursuing an end that's good for society and you get a return of your capital. It doesn't say how much of a return. So impact investing exists. It's a continuum. Um, and that's number one. Number two, everyone's going to have different returns expectations. And some people think about absolute returns, total returns. Some people think about risk-adjusted returns, et cetera. Uh, for foundations, typically think about um, for perpetual foundations, in order to be a perpetual foundation um, in the best possible definition, uh, over the long term, you'll make back your spend rate. Um, and that's a minimum of 5% a year. Ford Foundation spends more than 5%, uh, plus inflation because you want to earn your purchasing power. Uh, so for 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 you know foundations, the question might be, well, um, is that your hurdle rate? And um, you know, so it was eight percent for many years, or seven or eight percent, or do you have some higher hurdle rate? Because when you when you when you're talking about impact investing, whenever you have a subset of the investing universe, you're going to cut out the um, range of possibilities. And so in real estate, for example, uh, we're focused on multifamily affordable rental housing, which is on a relative basis, extremely low risk, which means the expected market rate of return reflects that extremely low risk. So it's a lower return. Uh, and so the question is, um, is that lower return even if it's higher than your hurdle rate, is that lower return in something that's worth you pursuing? And um, so that's why I go back to, it's gonna depend on the, um, the interests of the audience. And what we're good at is figuring out the themes that uh, fit best with our goals, finding managers, and taking managers through rigorous due diligence processes, making commitments, um, and providing advice to our managers and being there when they need us along the way. One of the issues I think for impact investing is the different definitions that you referred to a couple times here. If you were in charge of public relations or impact managers writ large, or for convincing, let me say it slightly differently, put you in your own seat, if you're the public relations manager to try to get more foundations to uh, transition their assets to an impact investing approach, what would be your marketing pitch? A marketing pitch, again, depends on the audience in part, and it depends on 
uh, who you are as an investor seeking capital, so a general partner. So the first thing is to be true to yourself. And what that means in this context is to find um, the optimal point of intersection between your knowledge, your passion, and your understanding of how knowledge and passion can be applied to investments to deliver positive social impact and financial returns. And once you figure out what what that is and, and, and what field you might play in, you might then get an understanding of what types of returns might be possible given what you want to pursue. And after you figure out what types of returns are possible given what you pursue, you would then need to think about, okay, what is, what is the set of investors that might have an interest in this topic area and this type of financial return? And based on that, you would then figure out um, what that universe is, learn as much as you can about um, the folks who are at that universe, what their past activity has been, and you would try to frame out a narrative that you think would be appealing. And it's very likely that there will be many, well, I should say, in the best case, there will be many investors that might have an interest and have a returns target in the area where you are focused. And if there aren't many, well, then you may have to ask yourself the question, am I pursuing something that's feasible? Were there areas when you were looking that you said, hey, I'm really having trouble finding uh, a fund to invest in? What, what were some areas where you had some issues? Yeah, quality jobs. Because there's something going on cognitively, and I'll call it a cognitive bias, that says that if you're doing good things for the employee, you're doing bad things for the company's profitability. And it's unfortunate that we live in a world where doing good things for people is seen as a bad thing. So thank God for people like Professor Zainab Tun, who has done the research and um, has found the data that supports the idea that you can actually do well and do good in the context of quality jobs and helping employees. And again, KKR has proven that out too. They've, they've had a very successful uh, uh, they've had some successful returns on strategies where there's broad-based employee ownership, where the employees have been able to capture some of the value of the innovation and productivity enhancements they've brought. But that's the area where we really want to double down, um, and we've already started uh, spending a lot more intense time uh, figuring out what, our, what the next step might be uh, in the quality job sphere. Switching gears a little bit, when you were going down this journey, were there people or foundations that you look to for inspiration? Um, Ford Foundation has the largest commitment to mission-related investments, but we were not the first to enter. So all those that came before, I was just on a panel discussion, uh, Columbia Business School class taught by uh, Georgia Levinson Keohane, who um, invites, uh, this is the third year, uh, Clara Miller and Valerie Rockefeller and I have joined in a panel discussion with children. And Rockefeller Brothers Fund, F.B. Aaron, were both um, both came before the Ford Foundation. Um, you know, Kellogg uh, had been doing MRIs, uh, MacArthur. So 
Um, um, you know, Nathan Cummings is now 100%. Uh, they may have, uh, have made that commitment later. But there have been a number of foundations that have been real leaders, and there were lessons to be learned from all of them. So really grateful uh, for, uh, for them being mavericks that, that you know, we could follow. And I've left out, you know, I've left out a few and, and I regret that, but um, those, those just come to mind quickly. I want to change gears a little bit, ask you a bit of a tough question, because for many years, ESG and impact investing and, and understand that there's a difference there uh, have been really well received across the political and economic spectrum. But over the last few years, uh, ESG has come under pressure from some unexpected quarters, including like you know, Elon Musk on Twitter, governors of, of certain states. How do you respond to the critics of ESG investing uh, in that context? Well, you know, um, I think a lot of people might be surprised that when you look back at history, there was a lot of pushback against something as simple as financial disclosure. Um, you know, you go back to um, what led to the Great Depression non-standardized financial disclosure. There was pushback against the concept of generally accepted capital principles would be too burdensome for the companies. Oh my goodness, how are, we, how are they going to do this? So there's pushback on accounting. Um, you know, there was a lot of pushback on venture capital being permissible under fiduciary duties. It wasn't until the late 1970s that, now think about if we had kept venture capital out of the portfolios of pension funds, you know, foundations, et cetera, where we'd be and how important venture capital has been as a component of America's leadership. So it doesn't surprise me that there's this type of chatter. I think what's important is to, uh, for me at least, and, 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 and those um, who believe there is great value to um, the concept of ESG is one, understand what, what are we talking about? So, you know, ESG is a framework of disclosure, just like generally accepted accounting principles. Uh, SASB is kind of the analog to FASB. I'm sure the naming was set up to rhyme for a reason. Um, and it's all about understanding information that could have an impact on a company's enterprise value that doesn't show up in gap, gap, financial, you know, accounting, uh, reporting there, there are funds that look at certain ESG behaviors. There are rating groups that rate based on their subjective judgment. Um, there is impact investing, which is really the, um, activation of one's interest in certain types of behavior. Uh, and then there's the idea that, um, um, some people may feel under attack if, they think their company may be doing things that may not be popular to some people. Uh, and, and so I, I can sense, you know, just from human behavior, um, uh, can understand why um, some people may feel under attack. But I think what's happening, again, through America, you know, through, through the leadership we, we see is that this, this, this debate is happening. Not always pretty, but information is coming out. We're all getting smarter, you know, have to say, I think Europe's a bit ahead of us right now. Other parts of the world, Asia, a bit ahead of us right now. But one of the great things about American leadership is we've been able to uh, pick out the best things that others are doing 
um, really uh, peel back the layers and sometimes even make them make them better. So I think we're playing a game of catch up right now. Um, and uh, I firmly believe that um, uh, as more information becomes available to more people and people get a greater understanding of ESG as a risk management framework, impact investing as a uh, way to uh, drive behaviors that uh, can be good for humanity, society. Uh, I think things are going to uh, continue to move forward. So that's that's my view. Well, I'd like to take a step back to the specific and then finish with sort of pr- predictions for the future. With the backdrop of everything you just said around ESG investing and sort of your, your history, when someone, a fund manager comes in and, and says, hey, I've got this great idea around something, what are the few things that really make you a sort of leading this effort around impact investing perk your ears up and say, hey, I've got to pay attention to this bond or this concept? Our evaluation of funds is probably no different than any other investors' evaluations of funds. We just happen to invest along things. So uh, I, I should start with that. So there's no kind of magic um, sauce. So I'll stick with my multifamily affordable rental housing uh, example. Um, Jonathan Rose, in talking with the Ford Foundation, it doesn't take long to see that he understands what he he understands the market. He's got a clear track record of success. He's got great references. So it, it fits. I'm not sure we've been approached by folks with like magic bullets. We talk with people who uh, who are passionate investors who instill confidence in their ability to deliver results based on their track records and their you know uh, folks who've worked with them. Now, you were uh, started off with. Impact Capital Managers actually as a member when you were at Morgan Stanley and now um, a sort of an LP in many ICM funds. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you thought Impact Managers was worth joining uh, when you were when you were uh, on the other side of the table and what role what ICM has played in the growth of impact investing? Yeah, so I didn't approach ICM as worth joining. I asked the question, should there be some sort of collaboration among this emerging impact investor class? So I was a part of a team of three people, my colleagues, Mike Mantle and Bill McGoy, uh, and Dan Heldridge uh, was deeply involved in this, but we created the first bank-owned SBIC in about 20 years at Morgan Stanley. Uh, it was called Morgan St- and, and it was the first and one of the few that ever existed, impact SBIC funds, small business investment company funds. Um, we started that process in, I think, 2012 or 2011. And as a part of that, um, uh, well, I had gotten to know Brian Trellstead, uh, I think in 2010, my, my team funded Brian's study of the question, should there be an impact fund formed in the US when he was at Acumen? This was 2010. We gave them a grant to study that out of my group of Morgan. That is that is a great thing. That is a great grant to fund. Whether we feel like it paid, we think it paid off. <laughs> we think we got a return. There are one or two of those. Yeah, no, that's great. 
<laughs> so that was that's when I met Brian, 2010. So 2012, we, we start forming Morgan Stanley Impact SBIC. And I was having a conversation with um, uh, uh, Monica Montia, who's also, I believe, a member. I said, hey, you know, should we form some kind of collaborative thing? You know, I think I'm going to call Brian. Let's do what Brian thinks. <laughs> and so and so that was kind of the three of us. And Brian says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd already been thinking about this. And I've been, I talked to So I thought, okay, great. And whenever Brian says he's been thinking about something, in my experience, uh, good things are going to happen. So I kind of got out of the way. Next thing I know, I was getting invited to a, a, a uh, some kind of class, um, meeting convening at Harvard Business School. Then we we convened at one of your portfolio companies with Galvanize or whatever uh, in San Francisco. And, you know, the re- the rest is history. I do take special pride in writing the first membership check <laughs> as one of my last duties uh, when I was at Morgan Stanley before I left to... Uh, uh, to join uh, the Ford Foundation. So thanks for asking that question. That was that was quite a fun ride. And by the way, at the Harvard Business School convening, I met Christine Looney and Grand McMillan, who unbeknownst to any of us, would soon become my, uh, about a year later, would become my colleagues at the Ford Foundation. The poetry is just um, beautiful. The Ford Foundation was an early funder, and I think still is a funder of ICM. So thank you. Thank you for generating returns of 28% in your impact portfolio. All right. Five years from now, when you've fully invested the billion dollars and, you know, what what do you think the biggest impact of the Ford Foundation efforts, this billion dollar allocation, the 28% returns, this innovation around impact, what do you think, if you're going to look back five years from now, what do you think the three or four biggest uh, impacts that this strategy will have had across the industry. Um, my my great hope is that we will have um, social and financial returns that are seen as uh, attractive and uh, and appropriate for any investor with fiduciary responsibilities under a fiduciary duty. That's that that's one. Two, I hope that along every one of our investment themes, we will have produced meaningful social impact that um, inspires others to want to do the same. Um, and um, three, I hope we will have advanced the common good. I mean, because that's that's the whole point. I hope we will have helped improve society by um, demonstrating that capitalism is at its best when it is in service to society and it's most inclusive. Uh, so so that's that's what we work seven days a week for. Our, I got a, pa- a, a team that's filled to the bridge with passion and energy to keep moving uh, this objective forward. So that's that's what I wake up and hope for every day. That's awesome. I can't think of a better uh, way to end. Thank you very much, Roy, not just for being part of that founding team at ICM and being there for that cold winter day in Boston, but also now leading uh, the Ford Foundation's efforts in impact investing. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
This is Marika Spence, Executive Director of Impact Capital Managers. Better Money, Better World is made possible in part by ICM, a nonprofit network of over 60 best-in-class fund managers investing for superior returns and meaningful impact across North America and beyond. Our members share a passion for partnering with entrepreneurs and scaling companies that will realize a more resilient, equitable, and sustainable future. If you enjoyed today's conversation, tune in for the next episode of Better Money, Better World. Tell your friends and visit us online at www.impactcapitalmanagers.com.